World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Belarus has been racked by protests since its dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, stole an election in August. Our correspondent meets with the probable actual winner, a modest former teacher now in exile who holds out great hope for Belarus to become a democracy. And have you ever watched candy floss or cotton candy being made? The sweet fibers seem to come together from nowhere. Turns out if you feed the machine plastic instead of sugar, you get the makings of a medical-grade filter for a face mask. First up, though. I have asked the mine workers of the country for a greater output of coal, and I am confident that they are doing their best to produce it. In 1948, the British politician Emmanuel Shinwell appealed to people to avoid wasting coal. But just as I am asking the miners for a greater effort to give you the coal you need, I also ask users of fuel at work and at home to burn coal carefully and to avoid waste. Then, coal was seen as key to a prosperous future. Now it's seen as a means to a hotter and deadlier one. It accounts for nearly half of the global energy system's carbon dioxide emissions. This week, a United Nations report laid out how coal use must be drastically reduced if there's to be any hope of reaching the Paris Agreement's target of limiting warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. The UN's Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, urged the world to get rid of it. It is time to put a price on carbon to phase out fossil fuel finance and then fossil fuel subsidies, to stop building new coal power plants and halt coal power financing domestically and overseas. The report this week from the United Nations and a group of international climate researchers laid out how difficult it might be to meet some of these targets. Charlotte Howard is The Economist's energy and commodities editor. So to meet the 1.5 degree target, coal use would have to drop by 11% each year for the next decade. To meet two degrees would require coal demand to drop by 7%. That's about the same decline that we are expected to see this year in 2020, which was really a historic bad year for coal amid a global pandemic. And so that lays out just how hard it is to achieve these goals. But even safe in the knowledge that it is a terrible fuel, it is still widely in use, right? What what does the the global picture of, of coal consumption look like? Well, this has been a really interesting year because in some ways it has illuminated both the progress being made against coal as well as illuminated just how tricky it's going to be to get rid of it in parts of the world. 
In the West and in Europe, you've seen coal under consistent pressure due to this combination of factors that are mutually reinforcing, from government policy, which promotes renewables, investors becoming increasingly wary of stranded assets and the risk of investing in coal, as well as really good alternatives to coal. In America, this wave of natural gas that was unleashed by fracking helped retire a lot of coal plants. And now the costs of renewables have declined by so much that in most of the West, new solar, new wind is actually less expensive than coal from existing coal-fired power plants. So coal is really struggling to compete. And the question is how you can start to drive down coal in other parts of the world where it continues to grow. If coal falls in the West but rises in Asia, which already accounts for three quarters of coal consumption, you're going to blaze right past the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And yet the question around fossil fuels more generally has been how developing economies can essentially catch up to the West without making all those same mistakes while while the West is, is taking its foot off the gas, as it were. It's worth remembering that American Europe, of course, their own economic development was powered by coal. And that even now, coal consumption per person in India, which is the world's second largest coal consumer, is less than half the coal consumption per person in America. And so there's this question of why should we limit our own economic growth and limit access to a cheap and reliable form of electricity? And so you see countries starting to reckon with this, trying to find ways both to meet their climate targets as well as continue to support rapid economic growth. But you say that Asia is is sort of central to, to this equation, and yet even China, for example, is, is making very ambitious promises about getting towards uh, zero carbon output. That's right. You saw Xi Jinping set out a goal of carbon neutrality by 2060 in September, and that is a really big deal. China accounts for more than half of all of the world's coal consumption It is the world's largest emitter. So having that level of political commitment from a government that is centrally controlled is very important. And the question is how soon China may act to set in motion plans towards limiting its emissions. There are a few really key documents that are coming up. So China's five-year plan will be published next year. That could include a net cap on coal, which would allow new installations of coal plants only as they replace older ones that are more polluting. And then also by the end of December, China has to make a fresh pledge to fight emissions under the terms of the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015. So I think we'll get some more clear direction soon, but it's hard to overstate just how important it is to think about China and coal just because of how large the emissions are. Well, that's the story for China, but you, you said Asia more generally is really the, the, the big piece of this puzzle. Some of the forces that are helping to drive down coal in the West don't fully apply in Asia, and that's largely because of the degree of government intervention. Obviously, in China, you have state-backed coal companies, but elsewhere in Asia, too, you have governments that are involved either in owning national electricity companies. In India, Coal India Limited is the state-backed coal company that is the world's largest coal miner. There's a very difficult political challenge, which is that the interests of the state and the interests of the coal industry are very closely intertwined. And so even when private capital begins to fall away from coal, you can have public support for it. And that means that it can be more challenging to make this transition than in parts of America or parts of Europe. So with all that in mind then, what prospects do you think for reaching the targets that are laid out in this week's UN report? 
I think there are a few really promising things that have happened. One is just this extraordinary decline of coal-fired power in the West shows that it is possible. Five years ago, coal accounted for about a third of Britain's electricity generation. And in the second quarter of this year, it accounted for 0.5%. The other thing is that in the five years since the Paris Agreement, you've seen real progress on a number of levels. You've seen market forces evolve such that renewables really are competitive in much of the world, even in some middle-income countries like Indonesia, where coal is still technically cheaper than renewables. You've also seen a really big ramp-up in commitment from global leaders, not just Xi Jinping, but India's government has set very aggressive targets for renewables. Of course, you have now, in the form of Joe Biden, someone who really views climate as a key part of his presidency. He signaled his commitment to fighting climate change in the appointment of John Kerry as climate czar. And I think that having the person who was America's senior most diplomat as secretary of state during Barack Obama's presidency is important in signaling to the world that a new round of American leadership on climate is coming. And one of the most important tasks in thinking about climate diplomacy is how to encourage this shift away from coal. And that includes how to support those who suffer from the shift. The workers, of course, also some of the institutions that have vested interests in coal. Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The dirty subject of coal is the cover story in this week's edition of The Economist, laying out how the world can kick its coal habit for good and why the gains aren't just environmental. Get a great introductory deal on a new subscription at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. We didn't pay attention to such things. Our parents were working hard to survive. Growing up in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya thought little about her nationality as a Belarusian. Nobody thought about nationality at that time. People mm. just lived. She became an accidental presidential candidate this year after her husband, a pro-democracy campaigner, was jailed to prevent him from running. Now, many believe Ms. Tikhanovskaya to be Belarus's legitimate leader. Now, for me, it's absolutely independent, sovereign country in the middle of Europe. Just my favorite country. But Alexander Lukashenko, who's ruled the country since 1994, remains in power after rigging the election in August. Since then, Mr. Lukashenko has relentlessly cracked down on the protests against his rule, seemingly hoping that demonstrators will simply tire of the abuse. Meanwhile, the 38-year-old former teacher is in exile in neighboring Lithuania. So the meeting took place in Vilnius. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia and Eastern Europe editor. 
He recently traveled to meet Ms. Tikhonovskaya. Her office is located in a modern office block. We met in a big sort of meeting room, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya sitting under Belarus's national flag. I was struck by how incredibly simple and sincere she was. Over the years, I've talked to many politicians, and she was very different. She was just an ordinary person who had been thrust into the thick of history, into the thick of revolution by extraordinary events in her country. So she spoke very simply and very powerfully about what is it that makes the Belarusian nation now. They are not a group of people on a separate territory, but they are real nation because they are proud that they are Belarusians because they maybe first time in their life felt that we are people who are responsible for each other, who take care of each other, who have the same way of thinking, this inspiring feeling of, of, of I'm the same as all the people around me. Values of respect, of dignity, of importance. And is she confident that the, those values, as she describes them, will actually translate into Belarus making a democratic transition, that Mr. Lukashenko will be unseated? Well, that's where it gets quite difficult. As she said to me, they do have determination and occasionally they descend into despair. The values are there. The values, as she said, will stay. The question is, do they have the mechanism, the fighting power, to transform those values into solid victory? The mechanism for the transfer of power is still very unclear. A lot of it depends on Russia which has backed him politically and economically, and which might be running out of patience with him. What happens when Lukashenko goes is an open question. And I think Svetlana Tikhanovska is quite aware that the actual political fight and all the difficult questions will arise after he goes. Of course, when we lose our common enemy, of course, the competition will start for sure. But... I want to hope that after all those sufferings that Belarusians went through, they will compete in a normal way, in a democratic way. Though I'm still sure that we don't understand what democracy is, just because we, we have never had such feelings, such culture of democracy. We have to study it in the future, we have to learn it. But still, I hope that people will not forget again, will not forget the value of this freedom to choose, of this uh, freedom to have all those rights. But meanwhile, the protests in Belarus just keep going. How, how is Mr. Lukashenko dealing with that instability? The kind of violence that we've seen uh, and torture we've seen in Belarus is really appalling. You know, since August, more than 30,000 people have been detained. About 5,000 people alleged torture, and the torture is really horrific. I mean, people being shot with rubber bullets at close range, they've been stripped naked, they have been sodomized, they've been passed through a corridor of enforcers and goons who shower them with blows. It brings back the memories of the darkest moments in European history. 
And how is all of this affecting Ms. Tikhanovskaya being thrust into history in this way, bearing witness to all this? Well, I think it's it's obviously taking a toll on her psychologically. You know, she lives in the knowledge that her husband, who initially challenged Alexander Lukashenko, is in jail. She has two young children, one of whom is five, keeps asking, where is our father? The fact that she's in relative safety in Vilnius under the protection of the Lithuanian state is a source of comfort. On the other hand, it's a source of guilt for not being with her people and living in this relative comfort. But as I said, she is not a traditional politician. She is not hungry for power. She's a fallible human being and she often succumbs to sadness, despair and loneliness, even though she is surrounded by people who so much want her to succeed. What's the hardest and the most painful thing for you? When was the lowest moment? I can name deaths of people, of course, but concerning me, the lowest moment where when I I am in such desperation that I stop to believe in, in, in our victory and I have no right to think like this. If I don't believe so, who else will believe? Were you scared? Are you scared? Always. I'm always afraid and scared, a different thing. You know, I always notice that I have to just have to pull myself together. Pull myself together, saying, Look, you are free. You are not ill. Your people your children are beside you. Just just pull myself out of this it's not depression, it's it's problems, 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 you know. Just look around. Stop and look around for a second. Thanks very much for joining us, Arkady. Thank you. That's the sound of an advertisement for candy floss, or as Americans know it, cotton candy. It's made by an elaborate process in a specialized machine. Now, those machines may be taken over for a more noble cause. A physicist in Japan has developed a method for making COVID face masks at home using candy floss machines, as well as other common household materials. Peter Silk writes about science for The Economist. The masks are just as effective as N95 surgical masks. So why the need for this, though? There, there was a shortage of those N95 masks at the beginning of the pandemic. Hasn't production ramped up? There's a huge scarcity of them. That shows no signs of being solved anytime soon because a lot of companies have been changing their output from whatever they normally make to PPE, but they can't do this with N95 masks because the process is just too complicated to make them, so they haven't really been doing that. The reason for that is they have a hugely sophisticated and complicated industrial process behind their fabrication because they have an electrocharged filtration layer. This attracts particles as they pass through the mask sort of like static, like the effect of things sticking to your clothes when it's statically charged. And that's why they're deemed the most effective feature of any mask for blocking the COVID-19 virus. And so how does a process involving cotton candy machines figure into this then? Right, so this is the inspiration of Dr. Mahesh Bandi of the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. And he set out to find a simple, easily replicable way of making 
electrocharge masks at home out of common equipment and materials. And so he took inspiration from the art of confectionery, specifically the cotton candy principle. And basically this involves taking a commercial candy floss machine, cotton candy as it's called in America, which is a pretty simple bit of kit that acts a bit like a big centrifuge. And normally, obviously, the uh, raw material is sugar, which is fed into it. A heater melts the sugar and it is shot out in a jet, which then cools on impact with the air and forms a fine sugary mesh, which is candy floss. But what Dr. Bandy did was instead of sugar, he fed in plastic, just like polystyrene, polypropylene, common household plastics that you would find in food containers, plastic bottles. And in feeding these into the cotton candy machine, the resulting mesh that the machine creates of polymers is a filtration layer in and of itself, quite similar to what N95 masks consist of. And so the material spun in this way is just as effective as the layer that's in N95s? That's right. So what, what Dr. Bandy did next was the resulting kind of polymer mesh, he cut that into small squares and ionized it further. So it was already electrocharged by the spinning process. And by putting it next to a, a normal air ionizer for 10 minutes, charged it further and layered it into masks, which he had 3D printed up four layers thick to allow for breathability. And filtration tests on this resulting mask showed that they were just as effective as standard N95s. So does that point to uh, industrial scale making of these things with cotton candy machines? Well, that's sort of the, the golden question here, but probably not is the, is the sad answer. Dr. Bandy appears to have published it as a proof of principle, putting it out in the open to offer a simple and replicable way for people to make more effective face masks at home, provided they have a cotton candy machine or are willing to invest in one. There is a possibility that companies could uptake this method. So Dr. Bandy has put this out there, hopefully, to see if it will alleviate some of that pressure on the shortage of N95s. Right, time to get on eBay and see if I can get myself a cotton candy machine. Yeah, well, it'll set you back between 50 and 100 pounds, so maybe a Christmas present idea. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.